This very body is the body of the Buddha. Keishin, if you would like, um, Dairin will help you. You can bring a chair over and sit next to him. He has to move the zabuton the right way for you. This is the meaning of the jewel of Sangha. Everyone is aware of everyone else's needs and immediately springs up to take care. And then the person who has been cared for feels even more the commitment to this practice so that all of us can be here for each other to spring up, to take care. This is what I meant by the mystical formulation of just this common sense, ordinary mind. So no one has to ask. Got it. Such and such. So and so needs. All right. Do it. Right? Yeah, so I'm sometimes not here. Soon I will die. So please, this is not at all making any kind of joke, just reality. All right? All of you are responsible for all of you. This is beautiful treasure of Sangha. And of course, it expands without any limit. This life, next life. All right? This is my preamble. Good morning. morning. You know, in the Dhammapada, it says, when we truly know that death will come, quarrels come to an end. By quarrels is not just meant enmity, aggression, hostility, but the quarrels that go on in the mind. The mind that thinks there's plenty of time. The mind that thinks, oh, this is just another day, it rained. The mind that thinks, 
so-and-so will take care of whatever. I'm not a jisha. This, to know, to really know, death is going to happen to each one of us. It's not a question of how old we are, how healthy we are, or anything else of the conditional nature of delusion. All right? It's now. And with this now comes such exquisite love for these birds, for the scent of the flowers blooming, for this never-before, never-again spring day. When the mind is not filled with useless concerns, what is a useless concern? We might say any thought that is not the thought of no thought, which is to say most of our thinking. And of course, most of our thinking is self-oriented. The self of no self, no problem. However, very rarely is that the focus of our attention. Why is it so hard to be just this moment, this breath, with no delusory thoughts getting in the way? Does anyone have a thought (laughs) about this matter? Not at, ease with not at ease with things as they are, therefore thinking there must be some little correction to make or change that we can create in the universe so that things are closer to the way they ought to be for us. Yes, of course, big delusion. Anyone else? Yes, having this sense of a separate self creates the need perceived to protect ourselves from what might harm ourselves. All of this is just a delusion upon a delusion. To really let it all go is what we do when we are sitting in Zazen. It's why we follow the breath with such assiduity. Assiduity, you understand that word? Hmm? 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 Assiduity. No. 
someone. Hmm? Assiduity, what is it? Hmm? It's also assiduousness. That doesn't help her. Resolve is a good one. Effort, focus. Again and again, bringing it all back home. Where is home? Now here, otherwise known as nowhere. Now here. Not anywhere, not some place, not what did uh, Sixth Ancestor, whom we'll read tonight in Dharma study, hear when he was awakened? Cultivate this mind that alights upon nothing whatsoever, that does not adhere any place, that is nowhere, therefore now here. This mind, not one single thing to confusion, to have this kind of confusion about. Confusion ensues when we are elsewhere instead of being now here. Elsewhere means an, a, a mind that is abiding on something, something that is created in the thinking process. Could be memory, could be just thinking about something about to happen or something that just did happen. And that's what prevents us from seeing what has to be done in this moment. We're elsewhere. Absent-mindedness is a very prevalent disease of the mind. Have you noticed this? It's a dangerous disease, as you know. What happens when you are lost in absent-mindedness? When the mind is abiding on something, this is what we mean by absent-mindedness. You are not here. Huh? Well, I'm experiencing it more and more every day with like dropping things into the toilet and knocking things over. And, and it's always about this not being right here, right now. I mean, I wouldn't have known that had I not encountered this path, but that's what it seems to be more and more. Mm. I'm not right here, you know? And I do clumsy things, more and more clumsy things. So remember, this is really important, that not being right here does not mean abiding in some place sometime, but it means nowhere, no time, no space, nothing adhering. So how do we regain as something is falling into the toilet, how do we regain that presence of no mind? Breath, thank you.
breath. This is good. Take a breath. And then let go. Let it all out. You know, this is the way we teach meditation, but often I sense that we teach it, but we don't do it. Just to be this breath. To return your entire awareness. In other words, not a partial awareness while your mind is wandering off, but your entire awareness. What happens is when that, that uh, exhalation reaches its very last drop and your awareness has been so completely with it, what happens is the next, we can't even say it's the next in-breath, it's the next bird song. There is no gap. The entire universe is nothing but this slightest breeze. sound. And how amazing to live our lives this way. We think we're not allowed to. This is what I mean by delusory thinking. We think we're not allowed to be alive in this moment and that we have to go chasing after something that will be preferable work better, be more about what we need. When we speak about the Daibosatsu Mandala, and we of course know historically it's this extraordinary confluence of great spiritual awareness on the part of many, many of our pioneering teachers, we may think that it is limited to a certain number of stories. But this is it. This moment is it. And everything is weaving the strands of the Daibosatsu Mandala, which of course is not just on Mount Daibosatsu in Japan or Mount Daibosatsu in the Catskills, but right here. Recently, 
we had Nyogen Senzaki Seshin. I, of course, spoke about him and this mandala of interconnected spiritual awakening. And the session ended on Thursday with Jukai. Nine people receiving the precepts among them. Rensho. What does your name mean? Lotus revealing, lotus leaves, lotus flower coming into our one pointed and 360 degree awareness. There was a woman who attended the ceremony. She was Japanese. I didn't know who she was. She had been staying at Oan and didn't want to disturb our session until we had the ceremony and she could be part of that and then coming to the informal meal. The next morning, I asked her to sit next to me at breakfast, which was also informal. And I asked her, what brought you to Daibasatsu Zendo to stay here for a few days at Oan? <clears throat> she said, well, my parents were here about 25 years ago. And they told me how wonderful it was, and I've been wanting to come ever since. And then she told me about her father, who's now 95. Her parents live in the outskirts of Tokyo. She said he still sits for at least an hour every morning. And five years ago, when he turned 90, we finally prevailed upon him to stop doing Rohatsu session at Engakuji. I said, Engakuji? That's where Soen Shaku was the abbot. That's where D.T. Suzuki and Yogan Senzaki trained. She said, yes, that's where my father trained as a monk. And when he finished his training, his teacher said, what is really needed in Rinzai Zen is a place where lay people can come and practice with assiduity, where they can be given the kind of care that you know how to give because of your training the kind of awareness that you know how to offer 
because of your training, please do this. And so her father organized this Zazenkai that met every week and began having more and more people coming to it and continued it for about 65 years, again, until he was 90 and assigned someone else to run it. But Nanrei Roshi from Engakuji, he is the present abbot, would come to lead them in session on a regular basis. So this lovely Tomoko-san gave me this book that was written by Nanrei Roshi called Insights into Living, the Sayings of Zen Master Nanrei Yokota. Do you remember Nanrei Roshi? When in 2003 we did Hakuin pilgrimage throughout Japan, we spent some time at Kamakura and visited Engakuji, knowing, of course, this was paying homage to Sorin Shaku, D.T. Suzuki, Yogen Senzaki. And we never expected to actually be able to spend time with Nanrei Roshi. We went and joined the Zazenkai in one of the buildings there for lay people. And then we were told that he would see our entire group. So we had two meetings with him. Kaz Tanahashi and I met with him first, and then the entire group came. You remember now? No? Okay. I thought it was 2007. It could be. Yeah, okay. Ancient Japan? Ancient Buddhism in Japan? We went to Kamakura that time? I thought that's where we went. I don't think so. If you look at the um, brochure that we put out, it's 2003, the Hakuin pilgrimage that we went to Kamakura. In 2007, we went to Nara and uh, Kyoto, and we went to um, Basui's temple, Kogakuchi. But anyway, in this book, Nanrei Roshi makes some really wonderful statements that are very easy for lay people to understand or new practitioners to understand. And uh, it is so amazing to come upon this connection just after in October Dokoro Osho and his wife and I were visiting Japan. We went for Hakuin Zenji's 250th commemoration. This is what I mean by the mandala. We don't know, but all of a sudden things come together in these ways. So we were there sitting as guests of honor on this platform facing all the Roshis who had just done this beautiful processional during Rogonshu. And then they were seated facing us, and the altar was between us. And right in the front row, facing us, was Nanrei Roshi. 
I didn't have a chance to speak to him that time. But this. So anyway, this is what he says about awareness. Okay, this is, in other words, awareness. What I'm talking about. Nothing in the way. The cultivation of this mind that abides nowhere, therefore is now here. Okay, so here's what he says. Oh, and there's a beautiful picture of Ngakuji with a flower in front. Vast, uncontrollable wildfires start with something small, like a match or a cigarette. As long as they remain small, fires can be stamped out easily but left undetected. Before we know it, they spread from tree to tree and finally engulf whole mountains in seas of flames. Then they are out of all control. So I'm sure you already know what the metaphor is about. In the same way, he says, delusions begin with petty ideas. Petty ideas. What is that? Petty ideas. Self-absorption in one way or another. This bubble of self that keeps us from awareness. The more we think of them, he says, the more such ideas congregate. Have you noticed that? Causing delusions to get big on their own until by the time we realize it, they are beyond control. For example, an initial minor annoyance, like maybe you're at the DMV, You know what the DMV means? Department of Motor Vehicles. Trying to get your license renewed. And after waiting and waiting and waiting, you finally get up to the desk and they say, but you don't have this or you don't have that. Someone was just telling me about this. An An initial minor annoyance can grow into hatred. And finally, into a homicidal rage. Do you remember they used to say going postal? Because of what? Homicidal rage in a post office. A postal employee? You remember? Very good. Not Nanrei Roshi, but you remember Postal. (laughs) Okay. The situation is then irreparable. Maybe it's pronounced irreparable. Okay. The first annoyance is only a single idea that can be eliminated easily. So in a way, you could say this is why we sit so that we can eliminate that initial idea by returning to the breath. 
by returning to one. This is the practice of eliminating that initial idea. If we do it over and over again, what happens? Hmm? Yeah, you get good at it. You actually do find that you are able to return to that. Just this. Just breath. More and more. You know, last night we went to see, uh, to hear, the Miro Quartet. They were doing a concert, the chamber music series. They were doing a concert of two pieces by Clara Schumann, one piece by her husband, Robert Schumann, and one piece by her, hard to say what the relationship was. They didn't actually say lover, but anyway, he lived with them. Brahms, Johannes Brahms. It was a very interesting concert. But was, what really struck me, even more than the music, was the way this quartet, actually a quintet, because they had a famous pianist join them from Canada, uh, John Kimura Parker. What made it so powerful was the relationship among the musicians. There was nothing between. Each one, fascinating to watch their, their awareness of each other. Of course, the first violinist always sets what's going to happen in terms of timing. But just their awareness, almost as though the instruments themselves were speaking directly. And they're really prodigious ability to be present. Their long, long years of practice was just so naturally the gift we received as the audience. And this is what we're doing. We are practicing in this way. Whether we are holding a violin, a cello, a viola, piano, to just have this metaphor, we are practicing. There are many days we don't want to practice, right? It's not a matter of wanting or not. To me, the most important thing about Zen practice is consistency. You are here. If not for you, the others would not be here. Your intention, your consistent practice, you're coming whether you want to or not. You're staying whether you want to or not. You're being a part of this Sangha even though you may be sick. You may not feel well enough to be here. Come anyway! Because guess what? Others come for us. Then others can be here. They feel this nourishment. They feel this Sangha treasure. But even more so, guess what? 
Hmm? We're gonna die. Yeah. <laughs> this may be the last time, right? The Rolling Stones got that right. This may be the last time. Don't assume. So, this situation he's talking about, the first annoyance is only a single idea that can be eliminated easily when we practice with assiduity. Getting rid of such ideas at this stage keeps people from going astray. The connection of ideas, putting one to the other, enchaining ourselves with our thought processes, you know, they usually end up with a mental construct of, I have to, I need. This is enslavement, right? The connection of ideas this way causes us to deviate from the right path. The right path. You may think in terms of the metaphor of the musicians I just spoke of. It's not a matter of right and wrong. It's a matter of performing that so that there is nothing but that those five instruments, those five human beings coming together in true perfection. When music is played this way, it is no different from what the Buddha taught when he was enlightened. All beings and I together are perfect, complete, right path, awake. And then Nanrei Roshi says, Ideas will arise. There is nothing we can do about that. The important thing is to prevent their enduring by nipping them in the bud. So this is very difficult. As you know, an idea arises and you want to follow it. It has a certain seductive quality. Or it's just a kind of random thing and we're so accustomed to random things being in the mind that we go on to the next random thing and before we know it, there is no way we can be aware now, absent from our lives. Death comes, we're not even here for it. What happens next? Anyway, he's much nicer than I am. He says, the important thing is to prevent their enduring by nipping them in the bud. Concentration on breathing enables us to do this. Concentrating our consciousness completely on breathing makes us aware when thoughts arise. We say to ourselves, a thought has arisen. I'm going astray. Instead of going to the next thought, we say, oh, a thought, first thought, before it falls in the toilet, thought. (laughs) A 
thought has arisen. I'm going astray. At that very moment, both the thought and the delusion vanish. Just as dreams and the moment we realize we are dreaming. If we remain unaware of our straying, we can seriously go astray. Now, this is the metaphor of the fire, right? Seriously. The word Buddha means one who is aware, awake. Being enlightened means being aware. When we realize the triviality of our fantasies, we immediately return to our and east to our essential selves. What is the essential self? Yeah, the hour isn't even there, right? We immediately return to essential self, this vast essential self. Counting breaths one by one enables us to realize this and restore the self of the present moment or self of no self. So this is our task. It's not hard if we're willing to commit to it. It becomes harder and harder the more we give in to the wandering mind, the deluded self, separated from all other beings. The wonderful thing about being the breath, letting the breath completely go to the last drop, and then experiencing the in-breath as all things in this moment, perfect and complete, is that it self-generates, self-creates, becomes our new reality, becomes the original reality that we've left behind. We reconnect with how things truly are, not how we think they are. That whole process falls away. Often we say, this requires great faith. But I'd like to suggest that it doesn't require anything at all, except to return. Return. With no judgment makes it hard to return when you are so caught up in how bad you are how your mind wanders constantly, how you'll never be able to do this. That's a waste of your life. Please don't waste your life. Just return. This 